Welcome to episode 22 of the Legends Podcast. I am one half of the hosting contingency. My name is Sam Manheimer, and I am joined by fellow co-host Ari Levy. Today's date is May 11th, aka 5-11 day. Shout out to all my short kings. I am actually 5-11, but I know a lot of people identify as 5-11 who may not actually be, but today's our day. Do you, do you ever think about just saying you're six feet? No, because I live a truthful and open life. I will acknowledge that I'm not six feet. I am six feet with shoes on. I got measured at 5'11 and three quarters, but I leave out the three quarters part because that sounds a little bit, I don't know. It seems like I'm pushing it there. I, I am six feet with shoes on, but I, I will not identify as six feet because I'm, I'm proud to be sub six feet. <laughs> I am just over the six foot mark. I'm like, I'm like six and a quarter, I think. I need to go get measured, but I am over six feet without shoes. I'm about six one with shoes. Uh, I just made the cut, so well, there's about- no there's no six zero day, unfortunately. So you don't have a day, but five eleven day. This is this is our day. I guess five twelve would technically be your your day, but that's not how feet and inches work, unfortunately. For sure, we have one of our more interesting interviews today. With a distinguished guest, Andrew Parker. He is a notable lawyer and father of friend of the program, Sam Parker, former guest. Currently, he is representing My Pillow, and he'll explain more about that when we get into the show. But definitely a really interesting conversation, much different from anything we've really done before. But it was really cool to hear. But you know, it's a pretty big case, and I've been hearing a lot about it in the news. And it was cool to hear it from from what he had to say about it. Yeah, Andrew was a fantastic guest. He has his own radio show slash podcast that is on a syndicated radio station, but you can look up his podcast. You, you can just search his name in the podcast app, Andrew Parker, and it's the Victory Hour, but I think the podcast name is the Andrew Parker podcast. Really interesting. He has a lot of really distinguished guests on as well, so it was nice to kind of have him on our show, a little cross-pollination, as our friend Alec Nyman would like to say. And uh, yeah, Andrew was a fantastic guest and shared a lot of really interesting opinions and takes. And we had an excellent conversation. Yeah. And also you'll hear about it in the interview, but we're going to just plug it now. Use code VICTORY for up to 66% off your order on MyPillow.com. That's code VICTORY. (laughs) And shout out to our sponsor, Uncle Buds, for reposting the Legends podcast story. Yeah, I I just ordered the the hemp seed oil rub, rub on, so I use the CBD and I use the hemp oil. For me, I think the hemp oil works a little better. I think it's a little different for everyone, but in my experience, the hemp oil works better. And I always got it in the lotion form. So my boy Garrett hooked me up with a little bit of a discount code, and I ordered the roll on. And I had some back pain yesterday from uh, from getting after it in the gym. And I rolled it on, and it doesn't even hurt anymore. So say what you want about Uncle Bud's, our sponsor, but it definitely works. If you're impressed by Ari's ability to sell a product, feel free to reach out if you want some ad space in the Legends Pod. We are accepting applications and Venmos. Yeah, we we, we got a great list of sponsors. Celebrity Sweat, Uncle Bud's, and now my... Don't forget Hiccupop if you need any baby products. We We got Hiccupop too and my pillow. (laughs) it's a star-studded lineup so Ari this past week was a fun week for us 
we went to the Cubs game together on Wednesday, which was a pretty fun game. Cubs won an extra as we left before the game ended. Sorry about it. And you it then, was it was, it was a cold game. It was late. I had, I had school the next day, AKA work. So I had to, had to get home and get in bed. But then you also went to the Bulls game on Friday. So it's safe to say that live sports are back for us. And it is a happy time indeed. Yeah, for sure. Live sports are back. Uh, the Cubs game on Wednesday was my first live sporting event over a year. And I followed it up 48 hours later at the United Center. Both games were great. Shout out Jacob Lorig for organizing. One thing that they do at these games that you might not see on TV is they zip tie all the seats together. So... Like they have open seats available, which are what your tickets are for, but like you can't really move around at all because the seats are zip tied, so you can't go and sit. I I, I don't know what it was, but I mean maybe it's because there weren't a lot of people in Wrigley, but it felt like the foul balls were coming very close to us. Yeah, with fewer people, you definitely have a better chance at catching a foul ball. And yeah. I personally really liked having Wrigley at quarter capacity and I'm not a Cubs fan so I'm not there to like be with 20,000 of my fellow people I'm there to watch a baseball game and just from a pure viewing perspective it's nice because you don't have people in front of you obstructing your view if they stand up in the middle of a play you can go get a beer or a hot dog really fast you don't have to miss any of the action like you could actually go and get something to eat in between innings which never really happened before you used to go at the end of a inning and then you're you're walking back into the stands with an out or two already so you you see a lot of the action i think the atmosphere is still palpable because the their chants are audible actually you can get a chant going even easier so there could be some deeper cut cheers so i i kind of liked it yeah and it makes for easier getting in and getting out of the stadium as well i liked it obviously it'll be cool to see it packed again one day but i mean from a viewer's perspective right now it's just like pretty much for me like less people is always better when you're in a place that there's a lot of people yeah. um same same with the bulls that was only i think four thousand, so that was probably about a quarter of the united center capacity i was sitting in the 200 club level which is which was pretty nice row one and that's where they were doing the live broadcast from for ESPN. So me and Laura went to the bathroom and we literally almost like turned the corner, almost bumped into Chuck Swirsky, who does the Bulls radio. He's been doing it for years. Really good guy. Uh, had a brief conversation with him. And then later at halftime, Jeff Van Gundy and Mike Breen were going to the bathroom. And I got a selfie with Jeff Van Gundy and had a, a brief conversation with him. I talked to him about a couple takes he had that I really liked, one of which was if you walk into an opposing team's huddle, you it's a free ticket to get punched, like you deserve to get punched. And then talked about how uh, Mario Chalmers won Best Looking Man in Alaska, because he's from Alaska, and, and Jeff Van Gundy said that if he was from Alaska, he would have won Best Looking Man in Alaska. It's not that impressive of an award. So we had a brief conversation about that. Super nice guy. I, I would have loved to get a, a selfie with Mike Breen, but that man looked like he was on a mission. Like he was like walking really fast and like looked like he did not want to be talked to. And I, and I know that man's voice means a lot to you, Sam. It does. It does. He's had some iconic calls throughout the years, including my favorite Curry from way downtown. Bang, bang. Oh, what a shot from Curry. That's yeah. in my mind. So when you said that you saw Mike Breen, I was actually 
very upset that you didn't just open up the microphone app and go over to him and just ask him to do, this is the Legends podcast, bang! Because <laughs> that would have been our intro forever if you were able to catch yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, obviously. But it was it was halftime, and like I think you know I think they had a max five to ten minute break of like yeah. you know going so they, they do commentary before the second half starts. They they don't yeah. have a lot of time. Yeah, they do, they definitely don't have a lot of time. And Jeff was walking around casually and like other people were going up to him. So I was like more inclined, but Breen was like, was like briskly walking and it like, didn't look like he really wanted to talk to anyone. So I was like respecting that. And uh, from a young age, my dad always taught me like, there's like a certain way, like you have to like go about approaching celebrities if you want like a photo or an autograph. And I try to adhere to that. So with that being said, going up to it with a recording, little obnoxious no but no i'm not actually advocating I, that you I know that. i know i know what you're saying but like had i gotten a photo with him and he was being talkative i could have been like hey real quick would you do this yeah but like I would go up to a microphone and be like say this say this <laughs> probably not gonna like that you could have gotten jeff van gundy to be like this is jeff van gundy and you're listening to the legends podcast or something yeah. along those lines we could also pay someone on cameo probably that's true that's a good idea did you see the did you see the Bruce Buffer cameo? No. He had a really good cameo that someone just had a baby and he like did like the whole UFC intro, like introducing the kid into the oh world. He's like weighing in at eight po- eight point two pounds. Like born oh. at fifty seven AM. It's uh it, it was good. <laughs> and new child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bruce Buffer is great. He's probably going to be like a $500 cameo. Yeah, it can't come cheap. That's cool, though. Jeff Jeff Van Gundy is one of those guys who I hatefully respect. I, I do think he's funny. I don't necessarily want him to be funny when I'm watching basketball. Him and Mark Jackson especially have a tendency to get off topic, and there will be really interesting game action that they're just completely ignoring so that they can get in whatever opinions they have. So. I, I yeah. do think Jeff Van Gundy's funny. Sometimes I wish he wasn't calling games I'm watching, though. Yeah, I, do, I do think he's really funny. Also, he's most famous for when he was the coach of the Knicks. Patrick Ewing and Alonzo Mourning got into a fight. and he Oh, ran, yeah, he grabbed onto somebody's leg. <laughs> yeah, he grabbed – well, he ran in the middle of the fight, and he, like, got knocked down. And then he grabbed onto Alonzo Mourning's <laughs> leg. And, like, Jeff Van Gundy's a pretty small guy. Like, he was, like, a lot shorter than I was. Not saying that I was short, as we established, I am six feet tall. But what I was saying is like he was like he's pretty tiny and he was just he's like dude, I think he's I think he was No, no, he's five eleven. Doesn't matter how tall he is, he's five eleven. If you're under if you're under six foot, you're five eleven. That's how it works. And then he and then he grabbed on Alonzo Morning's leg. He's five nine. Plus two, he's five eleven. Okay, we'll call five eleven. Out of respect. Yeah, he's basketball's Larry David. He is, yeah. Nice guy. That's awesome. Speaking of comedy, yesterday we had icon Elon Musk hosting SNL. And I I will be honest, I was a little bit skeptical of how funny he is, just being that how funny can you be when you're one of the richest people on earth? You got to be taken pretty seriously. But I genuinely laughed out loud. I went in not expecting to be entertained and I I thought it was pretty entertaining. Yeah, I mean, SNL is, is, you know, my my sister works there, but the show's kind of gone downhill past couple of years i don't think it's been very funny and they finally bring on a guest with like a lot of notoriety 
And I had maybe heard rumors of it before, but he said he's the first person with Asperger's to ever host a show, which I thought was just like pretty funny that he said that. Obviously, Dogecoin, uh, I think people thought it was going to maybe hit a dollar. I, I just I'm looking at it right now. It looks like it's it's making a little bit of a run this afternoon, but it did tank during the show. Yeah, I think it dropped 30 percent. But I saw a Reddit comment on this. If you're basing your investment strategy off of some dude hosting SNL, you should probably reevaluate a little bit. But even so, it is kind of entertaining that he tanked tank Dogecoin after referring to himself repeatedly as the Doge father. Yeah. And just FYI, Dan Aykroyd came out as having Asperger's in 2013, and he was—I mean, he was on SNL. He was a uh, comedian. Yeah. He, he was. He was yeah. a, uh, he, worked, he was on the show. Yeah. yeah, he was a cast member. That's the word I was looking for. Wow. Dan, Moving I, I am a big, I am a big Dan Aykroyd fan. I think he's a phenomenal actor. Also, if you ever want to listen to a really interesting conversation, he did a podcast with Joe Rogan, and they literally talk about aliens for four hours. And Dan Aykroyd's like very into aliens, and he like knows his research. He's like he he could like point to times, dates, everything. Uh, he says he's had his own extra, what is it an extraterrestrial experience? So, what's like it called? Encounter. Yeah, an encounter. And he, he talks about that, which is also pretty interesting. I will say, though, going back about what people are saying about Elon Musk and basing their investment strategy, I don't think we've seen this where like a figure has like his word has so much weight, even if it's if it's one word and an exclamation point. Like he tweeted game stonk with an exclamation point and it went up 125 percent. He's tweeted about Dogecoin and it's gone up like, you know, a lot. I, I mean, I think like. Like I, I believe in the power of the internet and people are like, you know, I was left off the, the GameStop train. I was hiking in Utah at the time and wasn't really paying attention to everything that was going on. But I, I've, I've invested in Dogecoin and I bought more before the show. I'm down on my second investment, but overall I'm still up. But, you know, his word does carry weight. Yeah, he's a market mover for sure, especially when it comes to the quote meme stocks. He's a he's a one of a kind individual, though, for sure. Truly one of a kind. I mean, he's a genius. He's one of like the brightest minds ever. Yeah, definitely. He's yeah, also yeah. kind of an asshole. Yeah, that's why I wasn't a huge fan of him in the first place. But I, I did think his monologue was good. He was a little bit more self-aware than I was expecting. Well, I think we can probably take us to Andrew Parker, who is also a funny guy. Excellent huge interview. Hockey fan. Huge hockey fan. So without further ado... Here we go. Andrew Parker. All right. We now welcome on a very, very, very special guest. Uh, He is the father of a previous guest and friend of the program, Sam Parker. He's a notable lawyer and just an all around interesting man. Please welcome Andrew Parker. Thank you so much for joining us. Guys, thank you for having me on the show. Can we call you Andrew or should we call you Mr. Parker? Well, I think Mr. Parker is appropriate, but most people call me Andrew, so that'll be fine. Okay, we'll, we'll go with Andrew then. We appreciate you coming on. and uh, It's been a little while since we've seen each other. Last I, I was with you, I think we were in Copenhagen when you were visiting Sam way back in the day, and a Danish man stroked your beard. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I remember well. <laughs> those, are, those were good times, and hopefully we'll have some good times here as well. 
Yeah, no, that was uh, that was a fun time over there, and we enjoyed seeing all you guys uh, when Leslie and I went over. Yeah, we we always had some good times when you you would come down for Parents Weekend. You you always a big big name caller of me. You know, you, you <laughs> called me a variety of different names. No, that's true, but you deserved each and every one of them. I'm, I'm not going to dispute uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> we had a few dances on the tables. For sure. Elevated surfaces. <laughs> girls girls, and parents visiting love elevated surfaces. <laughs> I miss the girl part. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was back in the day, though. You so you went to uh, you went to Minnesota and didn't you start Sammy while you were there? Well, it didn't actually start Sammy's, but I joined. We had about fifty members when I uh, joined as a, a freshman, and after my freshman year that spring, about thirty-eight or thirty-nine of them dropped out of the house because the, the uh, new president decided to institute a drug, a no drug rule <laughs> in the, in the, uh, you know, at the fraternity and, uh, you know, and the campus, they were, ca- they were cracking down on it as well. So starting my sophomore year, we had about, including a couple of pledges, uh, 14 uh, guys. And I was going to transfer actually to Georgetown from the U and they uh, got me real drunk one night and, and I agreed to to become president toward the end of my sophomore year and and try to uh, rebuild the the chapter and we were uh, we were pretty successful we had a few very interesting concepts to uh, to rebuild the, the chapter and try to get you know a better relationship and reputation on campus particularly with the uh, sororities was one of the policies to allow drugs once again or was that a rule to stay no it was a rule to stay but you know it was it was really it was limited to certain locations and so you know and not to support uh, drug use but there you know to be truthful there was quite a bit of it <laughs> I mean we could say the same about a pie. There was like a no smoking during parties rule. And that slowly started to just like fade away and people were just abusing it all the time. Yeah, we had, uh, you know, Monday night meetings and we, we grew the uh, fraternity to the year that I left to over a hundred. And so that was just, you know, in, in a few years and we became the largest fraternity on campus at that time at the university and went from not being able to get any sorority exchanges to really getting some of the best sorority exchanges and, and uh, bids uh, on campus. So it was really a uh, fun time to be, uh, to be in the fraternity back then. That actually sounds a lot like AEPI kind of in the time that we were there. I think the house got to a better point after we graduated, but we had kind of helped get it to a, I guess more elevated position than it was, but I don't think Ari and I were, were president. <laughs> so, I mean, but the truth is, I mean, that AE Pie House that it uh, had uh, a little bit, uh, a few problems. <laughs> it wasn't the most beautiful house. No, the house sure. itself was not. <laughs> we were all is promised. It, is it better now? 
No, no, it's probably worse. The house, the house itself, physically, it can't be yeah. any better. The big thing they like to do when when they rush kids, and I remember they did it in my years. They'd be like, "We got the blueprints ready. There's gonna be a new house here soon." That was like the thing that they would like to say to kids. And like you go down Greek Row, and you got all these like huge houses that were just like really cool looking, and then you just got this little dump. <laughs> but we make yeah, good no, memories. No, I remember. I remember it well. A few of the parties that we threw to really build uh, Sammy's, uh, I recall. One was Champagne Jam during Rush Week every year, where we would fill these chandeliers, basically, of pouring champagne, and I'm talking cases upon cases of it. And would you know, you just had to have your champagne glass. You go up and you fill, refill, refill. Anybody and everybody is welcome. And it became the biggest party on campus during uh, Rush Week, not surprisingly. And we had music. And then we had, uh, in order to get out of Hawk, in order not to lose our house, we, we owed over 40 grand in back rent and they were going to shut us down. We threw a party called Free Party $4. And over 10,000 people showed up about 15,000. They shut down the entire street on campus and we never got a permit. That was my first semester in, you know, as president of the fraternity. And I got, uh, I got called into the Dean's office at the university and had to do, uh, we had to do community service. (laughs) It was, it was pretty funny, but we got out of hock. That's incredible. That sounds like the plot of a movie. (laughs) Actually it does. Oh, I mean, I was, I was standing on the roof. This was literally the first uh, quarter uh, when I became president. I'm standing on the roof of our fraternity looking over this mass of people. You couldn't see anything but people. And we had these bands. It was a block party over Memorial Day weekend. And it was advertised on the top radio stations in town. So tons of people from the entire community showed up at this party. And all we were interested in was getting the money. And uh, they were paying, uh, you know, adult, you know, dollar bills because it was four dollars, stupidly. And we had these thousands and thousands of dollar bills. I remember just throwing them in the air. It's crazy. All right. So after college, you went on to be a lawyer. Well, first you went to law school. Where did you go to law school? And did you always know like you wanted to become a lawyer? Yeah, I kind of did. I was on a pretty boring straight track. You know, I I went to law school at the University of Minnesota. I went to undergrad there as well. So I was in and I got a master's degree. I got a a joint program with the Humphrey Institute of Public Affairs and the law program. So that took four years and I was an undergrad for four years. So I was at the university for eight years. The econ poli sci degree that I got in undergrad, you know, piqued my interest in public policy. And I always intended to go to law school. And I joined a firm out of law school that was kind of grounded in representation of public sector entities and government uh, entities, either suing or representing government entities. So uh, I've always been involved in public policy and public or political related issues uh, from the early days of, of my legal work. And then you started a few different law firms and I was doing some research on on your background. How long after you started your legal career did you want to start your own 
firms, and I guess that's plural because you've done a few of them, I think, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I uh, so out of law school, I I, I joined uh, this large firm. It was one of the largest firms in the Twin Cities, and we had offices around the country. Although it, it grew quite a bit when I was there, I became uh, a partner of that firm after about five and a half years out of law school, and then. Uh, I left the firm after uh, seven years. So I was only a partner for about a year and a half. But I uh, had a sense that a large law firm environment wasn't particularly for me uh, just because of the corporate issues. And I wanted to create something and kind of in my own vision, not that I could do it better, but, you know, I enjoyed the challenge of it. And I think I learned a lot, I mean, a ton from uh, the large firm that I was with, some great lawyers, many of whom are now judges or have started their own firms or some of the top lawyers at large, other large firms uh, in the Twin Cities, because uh, I, I left that firm in 1995 and the firm went under, actually. It was one of the fastest growing firms, the large firm I had joined, uh, fastest growing firms in the country. Uh, the National Law Journal wrote an article about the firm just a few years before it went under with huge praise for the firm and the way in which it had grown and expanded smartly. As it turns out, it wasn't so smart. I left about three years before it augured in and started my own firm with another partner and uh, two other lawyers. The one that I really handpicked as an associate to come with me ended up being the chief judge of the Court of Appeals years later here in the state of Minnesota. Uh, and as a good friend and a great, uh, was a great lawyer, and uh, he's still an excellent judge. But that first firm called Smith Parker grew to about uh, 10, 11 lawyers and was quite successful. We were together for 10 years downtown in the warehouse district here in Minneapolis. And... In 2005, I decided that I, I really wanted to build a litigation firm. I had been a litigator and primarily an employment lawyer up till that point, but my partner was not a litigator. And while he was a wonderful lawyer and a good friend and still is a good friend, I decided to um, join with uh, another close friend of mine who was a great lawyer, great litigator, Dan Rosen. And we started Parker Rosen in 05. And we were together until um, 2017, and we had grown that firm to about a dozen lawyers. And then uh, Danny, who has a place down in Miami, wanted to join a Miami firm, a larger firm, and become the Minneapolis branch of that firm. I didn't want to do that, so we decided we had a good run, and uh, you know it was really a, a quite a well-known firm that we had built and quite successful and mostly really enjoyable. I mean, every day was just, it was kind of like Allie McBeal, if you remember that, uh, that law movie from years ago. Anyway, and uh, so I decided to start, I, I looked at going into, you know, a number of other firms, larger firms, and I have a, a number of friends who are senior partners at those firms now. I looked at those options, but again, it just, it just wasn't me. So I decided to start uh, our third firm, and I joined up with uh, two guys, one who I play hockey with, 
still, uh, although he, he's quite younger than me and better than me. Uh, but he, he uh, and his partner joined me and we created Parker Daniels Keyboard in 2017, actually March 31st, just uh, a few weeks ago now was our four-year anniversary. And we've grown the firm from four lawyers when we began to 12 lawyers now in just a matter of a few years. And we do all uh, litigation work. And uh, it's another just really fun place to, to work. We've had to remodel now three times and We've uh, we've got a we've got a great group. But one of the big morals of this story is uh, you got to pick the right partners. It's so critical. And it's not just people who are good at the trade or good at the business or fill a need, but really the ethic, ethical and moral and, you know, environment issues, the atmospherics and the energy that the the two of you or three of you have together is very important and it has served me well as I'm still, you know, best friends with uh, Dan Rosen. And we were just out last night at the game. In fact, the wild game, which was a great game, by the way, unbelievable. I mean, it's so much better than the Blackhawks it's right really- now. Oh yeah. <laughs> you'll not, you'll never, never have a run like the Blackhawks hate to break it to you. <laughs> Anyway, Danny was, uh, yeah, he was there. We talk almost every day. And Lewis Smith, uh, my first partner, we talk all the time, too. So I just feel very fortunate because law firm breakups are usually quite difficult. And mine have have not been uh, at all. And and I've been very fortunate and blessed that way. So you guys, you know, you Parker Daniels Keyboard has become a pretty prominent firm. Um, you guys have represented some big cases. I've seen you on Tucker a few times, looking good. And right now you're in the midst of a, a pretty big national case. Uh, Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow. And I guess the question I have for you is, do you, do you sleep on a MyPillow? <laughs> yeah, you're darn right, I do. In fact, <laughs> the funny thing is that um, I, I just a few hours ago today, uh, went down to the to the studio. I've, I've got this radio show that I've been doing now for. Yeah, we'll, we'll love to talk about that as well. About four and a half years, and I I went down uh, because my pillow has agreed to sponsor my show, so they're they're paying us uh, to to cut ads for them, and I cut three ads for uh, my pillow, and in order to do that, <laughs> I uh, I went out and I got. Uh, a number of their products, uh, you know, dozens of their products. And now I have been sleeping on the My Pillow pillow for years, several years, and it, it is the most comfortable pillow I've had. It works for me. That's, that's what I've heard. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it may or may not work for everyone, but it works for me, and it works for millions of others. You know, Mike Lindell went from bankruptcy to a multi multi-millionaire and he built it all himself out of his garage and out of going door to door sort of thing and kiosks and shopping malls and standing there at county fairs. And, you know, that's how he built his business. So that's obviously a 
pretty public figure and has been over the last couple, pretty much, I would say, year or so, obviously, since he came into the limelight. What is it like to be representing somebody who the media has so much attention towards? Do you have to go on a lot of TV shows to represent your client that you wouldn't otherwise have to do? Or what is that process like? Well, you know, you do have to do media coverage more often than the run of the mill case, certainly. And this case involving uh, Dominion voting systems is a, you know, one of the most significant cases in the country right now, I, I would uh, guess. And the reason is, is not so much, uh, certainly it's important, uh, as to whether or not the election was stolen or not stolen. That's where people go on this issue right away. Mm-hmm. But the, the legal issue that is so interesting and that caused me to retain by our firm under contract, Alan Dershowitz, is the issue of the First Amendment. You know, whether or not the election was stolen in the end or it could be proven or not, uh, you're allowed to express your view in that regard. And there are tens of millions of people that believe that and express their view. And the hand that Dominion has had in it has been questioned for years, for decades, uh, in fact. And so it's, it's not shocking that using Dominion voting systems would be questioned uh, after an election which was relatively close, uh, certainly in uh, a few of the key states. Mm-hmm. So just, I guess, to recap the case that you've taken. So Dominion had, and correct me if I'm wrong here, sued Mike Lindell for his stance. And then Mike Lindell has then countersued Dominion with something to do with Dominion being a public entity speaking out against him. And then the government's not allowed to speak out against individuals. Is that the gist of it? Or am I well, in place here? Yeah, no, you're you're close. Uh, you're you're you know you're kind of in the well. You, you didn't quite hit the horseshoe ring, but you're, <laughs> you're a little. You're not in the grass. I mean, you're still kind of in the sand pit. All right. I so, played golf this past weekend, and I would have taken that. <laughs> okay. So the uh, uh, Dominion sued, claiming that. You know, I represent my pillow. I don't represent Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell is represented by another firm. My pillow was sued, though, by Dominion, despite the fact that my pillow has said nothing uh, about Dominion, nor has it gotten involved in politics. Its CEO, its founder, has in his personal capacity, but um, but not the company. Yet the company has been sued for one point three billion dollars. And, you know, we posit uh, on our side in representing my pillow that they have been sued uh, in order to hurt, damage as much as possible Mike Lindell, uh, the individual. Mike Lindell made statements about what he believed as it relates to Dominion and other election fraud. Uh, and he continues to believe uh, these uh, statements about uh, election fraud. 
he expressed himself. Uh, they sued. Dominion, it's our contention, is a government actor. Even though they're a private company, when you take on the role, the quintessential role of the government, and that is counting the votes. When you take on that role, you become a government actor. And there is case law, analogous case law, uh, for example, related to prisons. When private companies take over prisons and run them and operate them. Uh, but there are also there are also there's also case law that talks about uh, the governmental function of holding elections. And so, yes, we we believe that they are a government actor and therefore the First Amendment applies. And it's not that for purposes of their claim it, uh, that they said things. It is that they cannot prevent Mike Lindell from saying things. They cannot use the sword of a defamation lawsuit. And that's First Amendment law. And there's a lot of precedent at the U.S. Supreme Court on that issue. We did not counterclaim in the lawsuit in, in uh, D.C., which is where they filed it. By the way, we also argued that it should be dismissed because uh, it's the wrong venue. We did not counterclaim there. What we did is we sued where the case should be. That is here in Minnesota. And we filed our own lawsuit as my pillow, making the claim that Dominion voting systems using the cancel culture as a foundation and knowing that it was out there and what would happen, attacked my pillow which lost a number of its biggest retail customers because of these attacks. They knew that that would happen. It was foreseeable that that would happen. And they did so in order to harm Mike Lindell, who was merely exercising his First Amendment rights. So they violated Mike Lindell's First Amendment rights, and they did it under color of state law, and they did it for the purpose of damaging my pillow. So my pillow has a claim against them. So in your counter suit, can, are you basically suing them for damages and loss of business because of retailers removing my pillow? Yeah, we're suing them for all of that and frankly because the impact that this has had on my pillow the entire enterprise may never be the same has there been any sort of case like that before where somebody files a suit knowing there would be immediate ramifications as a result of it yeah the for, you know the, the foreseeability of their actions uh becomes uh, an issue in the case I don't want to get further into our strategy or legal theories on the case uh, than I have already, but you can get the complaint that we filed some two weeks ago in Minnesota Federal District Court online and, and take a look at it. it. I think it lays it out quite clearly. This is a very interesting case, and it is a fascinating kind of situation that I don't know that would have happened 10 years ago when there wasn't the same sort of 
pervasiveness of uh, opinions that flow so freely through social media. So I'm definitely interested to see how the case progresses over time. Astute of you, Mr. Manheimer, I will say, <laughs> because, you know, you're right. Uh, the, the culture that we are in right now, where people expressing themselves is no longer acceptable, is a dangerous, slippery slope. I agree. And I, you know, and I believe that, you know, agree with Mike Lindell or disagree with him, like him or not, like the company My Pillow or not, we are on the side of the angels here, protecting speech and protecting companies to go about their business without being adversely affected because of the personal opinions of you know, it's executives or others in terms of, you know, being uh, being canceled, if you will. Now, there's a flip side of that, of course, that exists. And that is people should be allowed to boycott whoever they want. That's an expression. And if they want to do that, they can do that. Companies should be allowed to to allow products in their in their retail stores if they want to. And if they don't want to, they don't want to. Um, but but this attack, when it comes from big tech and social media giants, uh, which arguably are public utilities or at least approaching that level, uh, Congress really needs to take a look at. Yeah, it's it is interesting now because uh, we've like gotten to a point and there's really no framework to work on it of like what we do with big tech, because it's illegal for phone companies to like record your conversations and then like sell them to someone else. Like they can't do that. But big tech, these companies are keeping track of what we look up, what makes us tick, what we're clicking on. And now you're at a point where anyone could sign up to use it and then they could kick you off for whatever reason that they want. And like, I just saw that Mike was just kicked off of Twitter Oh, and Donald Trump was kicked off of Twitter and we could argue like, you know, if that was good or not. But, you know, we're, we're reaching a point where I think you're right. Like Congress needs to decide like what these companies are doing because they got way too powerful, way too fast. Yeah. And, you you know, you wake up one day and you're living in a, 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 a world where people are estranged from one another to the point where, you know, people get canceled people get removed from being able to voice their opinion why because somebody determined that what someone else was saying was false was fake well who determines that it gets it's very dangerous when you put that in the hands of the government i can tell you that and when you put it in the hands of huge corporate behemoths it's just as dangerous we uh, we've seen throughout history what can happen when uh, the government controls what is truth and falsity? So whenever I hear somebody talk about legislation in which they want to determine what is, you know, too false in order to get an airing out in the marketplace of ideas, uh, when when you hear that, you uh, the red flags ought to go up. Caution. Yeah. The only parallel that I can really think of at the scale of a Facebook or a Twitter would be like a newspaper 
or a publication where you can reach thousands or millions of people via this entity. But with journalism, there are laws that govern journalism. There is a commitment to making true, truthful statements. There's a reason why there's an opinion column in the Wall Street Journal. It's so people can freely express their opinions without them being governed by journalistic laws and slander, libel, all that kind of fun stuff. With Twitter and Facebook, though, you and I can go on there. You're a, le- you're a lawyer, so you'd obviously have a little bit of a <laughs> firmer case here, but I can just say whatever I want on Twitter right now. But, so it does seem kind of ridiculous just from a 30,000 foot view that that company can then decide who and what goes. But you could also make the argument that Twitter is a little bit like a bar and you can kick somebody out of a bar at any time if they're doing something that you don't like as well. Granted, obviously, there's a bit of a difference given that Twitter is closer to a public utility than a than a bar, but that's kind of the way that I view it. Well, that, yeah, that is the big difference. You know, if it were just any run-of-the-mill private corporation, that's one thing. Uh, even if it were just a big corporation, but it isn't. It's beyond that. And these few enterprises have taken over that entire channel, if you will, of communication. And, and to your point about journalism uh, having laws or rules, I would argue that uh, those rules have been destroyed over an extended period of time to the point of being uh, ignored or non-existent. And now media on all sides communicates according to narratives that they develop and build not based on the facts, but based on usually money, the bottom line, what's going to sell, and secondly, based on power. What is it that will bring them more power and authority? And so the number of errors that are committed by the New York Times is just ridiculous just blatant errors and they you know not in their editorial column but in their news columns they write such pejorative slanted headlines that you know it's it's farcical to claim that you know they they write according to rules and that's why recently Barry Weiss resigned from the New York Times and I think a couple of others have since but she did. I've heard her speak a couple of times since the uh, resignation. And if you haven't read her open letter of resignation to the New York Times, you should definitely get it and you should definitely read it because it is a statement of a liberal journalist who had to quit the New York Times because of its complete failure. This is the gray lady. This is the mark of journalism. And what they have now reached is, um, you know, it reflects desperate times for us. Yeah, and, and it is it is an interesting time. Like, kind of going off your point earlier, it, like about freedom of speech, like if you wanted to organize a protest or set up somewhere and basically talk about how the Holocaust is fake. Like it is your constitutional right. Like you could do that, but it seems like, you know, Twitter and these companies, which are private companies, 
they do pick and choose what is allowed to be said on their platform. But that's well, like they do. They certainly pick and choose. And it's just like such muddy water that we've never really been in before. There are a few things. Number one, you know, it's it's a lake of muddy water yeah. that uh, we certainly have never been in. But the, the but the water is, you know, it's quicksand now and not even mud. And and we haven't been in that either. So we don't have any examples uh, that we have dealt with in the past, like the giant tech industry now, social media tech industry. Now there aren't many comparables that we can look to or that we can learn from. And so it makes it particularly tricky, uh, you know, and, and, and difficult and that's why I hearken back to, and that's why this case we're talking about is so important. I hearken back to the U.S. Constitution, uh, that you know, foundational, fundamental document upon which, when we're in trouble, we can always turn to. And unfortunately, many are wanting to rewrite it, uh, rethink it claim that it's a racist document in and of itself. And so we can't even fall back on that. And as far as many are concerned, no, I disagree with that. I think we can fall back on that. We can fall back on the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights uh, and the 14th Amendment and look to the genius of these civil the, these uh, these amendments to the constitution that made it that much better of a document than it originally was and if we do that and maintain those foundations we'll come out of this yeah to your point about the constitution being seen as a racist piece of law i guess i, I can understand the argument for that given the circumstances under which it was written and whatnot but i think kind of the issue that we run into now more than anything, is that we, we look at it as this concrete document, whereas I think it's really a living document, it's a, but it's a framework that has endured for the 250 some odd years that we've existed. I, I still think we should be able to adapt it in certain instances, but that's just my personal opinion. Nice expression, Sam, of judicial activism. And Justice Brennan would be proud of you. <laughs> Uh, I come from a bit of a different school of thought uh, than that of judicial activism, which is the belief that the Constitution is a judicial activism is the belief that the Constitution is a living document that is to be adapted to the times and the people living in those times and their social and moral ethical codes. Uh, and, you know, the, for uh, I remember back in law school, Justice Rehnquist was the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he had just become the chief justice and he came to our school to speak and he was roundly booed, which was fairly disgraceful, actually. Uh, and I was one who didn't uh, appreciate nor support him at all 
uh, either. He was a conservative judge, justice, who had a far different view than you just expressed. And, you know, I was uh, much more in the Brennan, Blackman, although Blackman was a little more moderate, Thurgood Marshall camp. But I, my thinking has evolved quite a bit on that subject. And, and I think the foundation, just to wrap this piece up for a minute, the foundation of my thinking is grounded in the idea that there are inherent principles and they do not change. They are concrete and cemented from the days of Adam and Eve. And, and they, are, they, they are the foundation of the continuation of humanity. And so, you know, if we allow things to change as society changes, what if ISIS becomes society and their theories and morals and become society? Or, you know, and, and they take the Constitution and they say, okay, we're going to amend it. We're going to change it. It's a living document and we're going to. And, and so after I, you know, analyzed over years and years, and I'm still evolving in my thinking on this, I uh, uh, realized that there, as I say, are inherent principles that are a bedrock that do not shift. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with you on that latter point. There are certain inalienable rights that should never be infringed upon. And I think no matter what your political affiliation is, the freedom of speech is easily the most important one. So I think really regardless of opinion here, we can agree on that. And I think that we, uh, I think the case that you've taken on with uh, my pillow is a very fascinating example in that. And um, yeah, like I said earlier, very interested to see how that plays out. So... You got a you have a radio show which I've called into. Great show. It's the Victory Hour, right? It is indeed. Yeah. And so, by the way, if you go to mypillow.com and put in the code VICTORY, you'll get up to 66% off your purchase. Uh, okay. So I'm going to plug it in for the viewers when we drop our episode. It's just Victory. That that's the uh, the promo code for mypillow.com. I have honestly been thinking about getting a new pillow, so I might. And if I get 66% off, I mean, that's, it's basically free. But, it's, but up to, it's up to 66%. So who knows? You may only get 10%. All right. I'll, 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 I'll mess around with it. Um, uh, so I, I, I like your show. Um, I've called in before. I remember one time I called in. And you were like, uh, you know, you're like, it's Ari from Illinois or Chicago. You're like, are you uh, you wearing a bulletproof vest when you go outside? Yeah. And now I got to ask you, are you the one wearing the bulletproof vest in Minneapolis? You know, isn't that amazing? Isn't that true? You know, I was just in Chicago last weekend moving. By my uh, childhood home. Yes, yes. By your childhood home. Exactly, Ari. And I was moving. uh uh, my daughter from one place to another. And, you know, I, I told her, I said, you know, other than the Blackhawks, which, you know, is, is really a, a disgraceful team, uh, that, that if it weren't for a, a crazy ricochet off the back stanchion behind the net by Patrick Kane, and it came right to Patrick Kane, and he buries it in overtime in game six 
of a few years ago, we would have been going instead of the Blackhawks because we certainly would have won game seven. Sam and I were at that game, by the way. And it was the biggest. I mean, I still I I just I can't deal with it. Um, I mean, so that was it. They were a dynasty, though. I mean, they won three cups like I know, but we would have beat them. (laughs) They were good. They they were good. I I but I don't like Patrick Kane. No, I don't. All right, I don't like. Can him. I ask you a question though? Uh, is Patrick Kane the best American hockey player ever? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. Uh, He's accomplished a lot by thirty. He all right. Kane is uh, before thirty had three Stanley Cups, the Conn Smythe Trophy, uh, the the Hart Memorial Trophy is the most valuable player. And the Art Ross Trophy is scoring champ for 2015, 2016. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a lot for an American hockey player. I mean, for anyone in general, but amongst Americans, because people just often forget that most of the guys are Canadian. Yeah, there are a lot of them. That's really the question, whether they're Canadian or not. But going back to your question, you, you know, you're you're right about it. It it really underscores uh, some of the difficulties and the ills that occur in urban society not just chicago but certainly chicago you know when you have crackpot government running the city for so long and apparently now not supporting nor caring about certain neighborhoods uh and not supporting the police to do its job you end up with shootings that make the number of unarmed black men who are shot and killed by police pale in comparison. And nobody cares about these minority deaths uh, in these cities. And, and we need to because every life is important. There's no question that any cop that does what Derek Chauvin did uh, as you can see on video, you know, needs to be tried. And if the evidence is there, convicted and put in prison. No doubt about it. That's our system of justice. But up here in response, to take the response, to take advantage of the crisis that we faced in that situation and to turn it into a defund police, further ruin or start to ruin what was one of the great cities in the country. I think Minneapolis was. It's a beautiful city. Uh, It's a city that was growing, expanding. You know, we had a number of disparities in the city that needed to be worked on. And the left, continual left-leaning city council didn't do the work necessary to do that. But defunding the police or even reducing police budgets at all, let alone defunding them, is the opposite of what you should be doing. You should be pouring money into police departments to make them better. I mean, it's crazy. When it comes to education, the liberal left say, we got to pour money into education when schools are failing. They need more money. Oh, but not with police. When it comes to police, no, we don't need law and order. We don't need civility. Hey, the difference between the state of nature and civilized society is the law. That's all. That is a very thin line. 
What do you think about the role that police are being asked to play in today's society? Because I think a lot of the issues that have kind of snowballed into what we've seen in Minneapolis and around the country have kind of stemmed from a police officer maybe not having the training or not being the right person to respond to a certain situation and having it escalate. What would you say in regards to that? Do you think that police should receive more training or do you think that there should be kind of additional individuals kind of as a part of a police force or like a, I don't know, maybe like a mental health professional going on board with a police officer. Do you think that would kind of help stem some of these issues? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it doesn't take a riot rocket scientist to figure out that police officers need more training, not less training. And the training to defuse or deescalate difficult situations is critical training. And that they need more tools so that they can escalate only when necessary and use lesser tools when appropriate. And beyond that, different people and different groups can support the police officer or the police officer can support them in depending on what the call is. All of that can be done and it can, can be done easily. And it can be done with increased funding of the police, not reduced funding or of the police function, if you will. Maybe not of the police department, but of the police function. And so, you know, it, it, we need to have our best and brightest out on the street protecting us. Not just somebody, you know, that's getting paid 30, 40 grand or something. And I'm not saying they are. I, you know, they're getting paid more than that. But, you know. If you want to reduce budgets, that's what ultimately they are going to get end up getting paid. It's ridiculous. It's stupid in the area of education, and it's stupid in the area of law enforcement to reduce uh, funding and, in those areas. And if there's less police around, like crime is going to go up. It's, fi- it's well, not, I'm not, uh, it's I'm, not I'm only like, going to go up, Ari. It's not only going to go up. It's going to go up in minority communities, and for sure. it, it is so infuriating that time and time again, left-wing liberal policies intended to do X end up doing Y. They end up doing the unintended consequence of making matters worse, not better. But they have a great story to tell about why this is going to be so wonderful when we send $6 trillion out into the economy. This is going to be great. And we have to do it, by the way, no fault of our own, but that's the position we're in. So we've got to do it. You know, I was walking downtown today and I and and I saw all these people out and they were, you know, in the middle of the day. You know, nobody's working. They're all out and they're all buying. And I'm going, where are they getting this money? The economy has not suffered hardly at all. People may be unemployed, but they still got money. Everybody's got money and they're pushing the money around. I'm going, this doesn't come without a cost. And the cost is coming in a few years and it's going to be severe. Well, Janet Yellen, I think today said that they would probably have to raise rates if the additional spending was to go through. So that may be one of the consequences. Yeah. They're going to they're going to have to raise rates, uh, inflation. Listen, nobody and particularly in your lifetime, either of your lifetimes 
Have you ever experienced inflation? The last time we experienced inflation was that great president, Jimmy Carter. Yep. And it was stagflation. It was high unemployment and what was it like 13, 14 percent inflation? It was outrageous. You couldn't get a home mortgage when you guys end up getting married, which, you know, God willing, someday you might. I mean, I don't know who would do it, but somebody will dive on that grenade and you guys get married and you're going to go out and get your first house and it's going to be, you know, uh, 10, 11 percent mortgage rates. Right now, it's two and a half, three and a half percent. Yeah, I've had conversations with people around your age, like people's parents. And yeah, I've always asked them what their interest rate was on their house. And it's it always baffles me to think about nowadays when you just see them at rock bottom. But yeah, I mean, it's eventually probably going to go up and it's not going to be a great day when it does. And the economic fallout from that generally hits the people who are most vulnerable, too. So no matter what you think about policy, it is always kind of the same people that get burned when things That's exactly right. And the, and, the, and the left-wing liberals say, oh, no, we're doing this to help the poor. No, you're not. Because when you shut down the, the Alaskan pipeline, gas prices go up. And who do gas prices going up hurt the most? The poor. The people who are getting just barely by because people who have got a lot of money, they don't care. All right, so they pay 50 bucks instead of 35 bucks at the gas pump. Big deal. But, you know, for some people, that is a big deal and it makes a real difference. There are a lot of people like that. And those are the people being hurt, just like in, you know, what defunding the police, the people being hurt are the minority community people, just like this COVID shut down the schools. Who gets hurt by that? Minority populations repeatedly get just murdered by that, uh, you know, government overreach policy. I, I tend to agree with you on a lot of that, but we're coming up close to an hour here. And I just wanted to ask a couple questions about your son, who is a guest of this program. He gave really? us a great he gave us a great layout of the Middle East and we talked about Israel, the Israeli elections. And as his father growing up, I know you guys took a lot of trips to Israel, you were part of APAC. Did you always think did you ever think he would end up in Israel full time? I thought it was a possibility, but I really didn't think a lot about it. I mean, it wasn't something that I hoped for uh, or didn't hope for. It wasn't what I what I really have always hoped for, uh, Sam and Noah, is, you know, that, that they follow their path and that it be an authentic path and a, and a path that is really uh, connects with their soul and what they uh, want. And if they're doing that, whether it means, uh, you know, living here in Minnesota, uh, living in Chicago, Ave, uh, living in Florida or living in uh, Tel Aviv uh, or Yugoslavia, for that matter, you know, I just uh, I, you know, I want him to uh, really feel where he's at and he. He is definitely uh, doing that right now. He, he's really uh, I, I'm very proud of him. And he's coming home next week, right? He is. This weekend, I haven't seen him for uh, well over a year. Yeah, he's uh, definitely followed a very unique path. Would you have been happy if he had settled in the socialist bastion of Denmark? 
You know, I enjoyed I enjoyed Denmark and I enjoyed visiting him there. You know, Denmark is is interesting. It, it is a bit of a socialist bastion. You're right. Uh, it certainly is, but not as much as people claim. It is much more capitalistic uh, than than what uh, people claim. And you know, if you wanted to uh, settle in Denmark, I would have been happy with that too. But not nearly as happy as I am that he's in Israel. It's it's just wonderful. Yeah, no, Israel's amazing. Denmark, people forget. They actually, I think, have a more free economy than we do here. There's no minimum yeah. wage. There's not anywhere near as many business regulations, but they allow employees to have a lot more organizational rights, which I find very interesting. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of those Nordic countries, though, like, like it's so interesting when I have like conversations with people about like healthcare, which we don't really need to get into right now, but just like the, the idea of like, you know, these socialist countries like Denmark, Sweden, Norway, everyone has healthcare. And it's like, yeah, they're like very homogeneous countries that have like, That's I think right. like 8 million people live in Sweden. I was like, try doing that in a country with 350 million people. And you got people, half the country, half and half have complete different political views. Socialism wouldn't work in the United States. Like I've just, I've always said that. Yeah, it's a different laboratory yeah. uh, here than it is in Israel, for example, or either Israel or the United States compared to Denmark. It's different uh, in, in uh, you know, all three. Yeah. So, Andrew, um, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you. So you often represent plaintiffs in cases against businesses. So one of the things that comes from that would be potentially emotional distress. As a Las Vegas Raiders fan, do I have a case against Mike Mayock and John Cruden for emotional distress, given that I've been a lifelong fan? Do I have, am I under their jurisdiction? Is that the right term for, for that? And, and would you take me on as a client? You know, it's, it's an interesting question. It's one that causes us to ask, who is the real defendant in that? situation. Is it Gruden? Is it Mark Davis? <laughs> I, I would venture to guess, number one, while Gruden certainly has relatively deep pockets, Davis has deeper pockets. So I would think that we would want to go after Davis and we would probably have a better claim against Davis because as I understand it, and it comes from pretty good sources, he's a moron. <laughs> And so, you know, and he's consistently stuck his nose in where it doesn't belong, causing the team to repeatedly suck. So, all right, let's just assume that we, we move forward. How do we negotiate your contingency fees? And then I guess like what would be your cut of that? But let's just say we take the team. How much of the team do you own and how much of the team would I own? Well, I will tell you requiring the creativity that this particular matter would require is going to cause the contingent fee to be, shall we say, enhanced. It'll be an enhanced fee, which means no friends and family should, the should we win, should we win and take over ownership of the team, I would have 90%, you would have 10% which is a lot better than where you sit right now. So you should be thrilled with that deal. 
I can't put in the code victory to get 66% of the team. <laughs> well, you get a pillow for that. Yeah, Davis, <laughs> Davis isn't. Davis isn't the brightest guy. I think he had that tweet the the day Chauvin got convicted. It was like, I can breathe. Like he wanted the Raiders to tweet that. And then like they got a lot of like pushback from like all over from like NBA players, NFL players. And then he just came out and was like, it was my idea. I'm just like not the brightest guy. But some guy a few years ago sued Derek Rose when he kept getting injured. Uh, some Chicago guy who's like, it caused him emotional distress because he wasn't able to watch him play. But the the one I really do want to hear about that you wrote down, Sam, was the experience you had with Airbnb this past weekend, if you want to ask Andy, Andrew about that. All right, so I do believe that I legitimately have a case here. The other one was a little bit of a joke. So a group of friends and I were going to New Buffalo, Michigan this past weekend to uh, just have a nice time away from the city. And we were looking to rent an Airbnb for about the eight of us, nine of us that were going. And we made a reservation. And then the host of the place that we were staying at canceled on us. And his rationale was that we were too young. And a lot of the places there have stipulations that you need to be at least 30 years of age to rent out. Not an Airbnb policy, but it's a rental uh, policy. How is that not age discrimination? And should we at least be reimbursed for our, our hardship that was caused by having to go to a different Airbnb and sacrifice the experience that we could have had at the first one? Well, how, when, you, when you applied, did they accept your application or did they and you got the reservation and then they canceled it? So I believe that was the case. I wasn't the one that made the reservation, but I do believe that we did make the reservation. It was accepted on Airbnb, but then later on, a day or two later, somebody had reached out and said, you're not going to be staying here this upcoming weekend because you're not 30 years old or something to that degree. Well, you may have a potential uh, breach of contract if the contract was consummated, if there was offer and acceptance and consideration you may have a a breach other than that though you know having age as a criteria because you are not old enough as opposed to you're not young enough which is what age discrimination is about it would be a reverse discrimination case against young people the problem with it is that if there is a legitimate business justification for having uh, or prohibiting certain age groups from the use, that will be a defense that will defeat your claim. And so here they would say, you know, we've got study upon study that show you know, hoodlums from A.E. Pie, when they come to our place, it gets destroyed. And so we are not required to allow them to stay here until they've at least reached the age of 30. In my religion, I've been a man since I was 13. Could I make the counter argument that I've gained a bunch of maturity and I'm not like every other 26 year old? Yeah, I like the argument. I mean, and if you wanted to identify as a seven foot Asian woman, I think that you could probably do that today as well. And, and argue 
that you're identifying as that and they're discriminating against you. I identify as a 30 year old. I'm just going to use that as my argument going forward whenever it comes down to it. I, I identify as a pencil. Yeah, exactly. I mean, hey, we we have a lot of latitude today, unlike years gone by. Yeah. Before we wrap up, uh, I just saw an article come out on Bleacher Report. Uh, it was kind of recapping the NFL draft. And the Bears, as you may have saw, traded up and took Justin Fields, a franchise quarterback. And apparently it said your your Vikings were, uh, were, were waiting for him to fall and they were going to take him, which a lot of people – didn't necessarily see coming into the draft, but how, how does that make you feel knowing that the Chicago Bears division rivals swooped up the guy you guys wanted? Well, I'm you know I'm not surprised. The Bears have been a nemesis. For the Vikings, you know, they, a few years back the Bears had trouble with the Vikings, but of late it has been quite disappointing. But you know, I am a Nearly, I'm a 50-year Viking fan, and so I've lived through it all. In fact, more than 50 years, 54 years probably. You know, in the 60s even, I was watching in the late 60s the runs by the Vikings, certainly 70s, 73. But the NFL has really uh, left me. Uh, I... Uh, I left the NBA several years ago and will no longer watch any I NBA would too if I was a Timberwolves fan. But. Well, <laughs> fair enough. But it isn't just because of the Timberwolves. The game is just uh, not – it's just not a good game anymore. It, it used, When the Pistons were playing with Lambeer and DJ and, you know, that was, uh, that was a fabulous game. NBA Finals, if you got to 90 – it would be unusual. You know, 85, you're going to win the game most of the time. Nowadays, 120. What kind of NBA? What is it? And besides that, the whole racial issue entering into it and getting into politics, like Hollywood gets into politics, now the athletes need to. I don't like that either. And the NFL has left me uh, on that one. I'm left with the uh, with baseball, which I continue to like, although – they're starting to now get into it as well with moving the All-Star game to Colorado, which is an absolute joke and ridiculous. Don't you need outrageous. to show your ID to vote in Colorado? Yeah, I mean, Georgia's new law is more uh, open than Colorado's law, and they move the game to Colorado. It is just ridiculous. The only good game left is hockey. I mean, the NHL... You get three teeth knocked out. And what did Duncan keep? What did he do? When he had not he three teeth, he had teeth like seven out. teeth knocked out. He had 24 stitches. He came out in the third period and he played. Yeah, and they the, the, the cool thing about that was it was a clinching game of the 2010 Western Conference Finals. So he got his teeth knocked out and they picked a lot of them off the ice. And they were like, if they're like, we could put them in and we might be able to save your teeth and you will have your teeth. He He's no. like, nope, I'm going back out there and play. Yeah. He ended up missing like kind of the timeline in which he could have his teeth back. So he had to get all these fake teeth. And he went out there and he hoisted the, the Western Conference trophy. And then later the Stanley Cup. Yeah, there it is. It is one of the defining moments of the NHL. And it's why it is such a, a great league. I mean, if, if uh, 
if LeBron James stubbed his little pinky toe, he'd be sitting on the bench whining about it for uh, weeks on end. Well, LeBron did just come out and say that he's never going to be 100% again after his ankle sprain. In hockey, they just oh, call that a lower leg injury. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, Andy. Andrew. Andrew. <laughs> Mr. Thank Parker. Uh, Andrew. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining the Legends Podcast. Truly just one of a kind. Before we go, do you want to tell some of the the viewers about your radio show? I know we briefly touched on it, but ways they could tune in and and when it's on. You can absolutely uh, tune in live streaming 1280 a.m. The Patriot at 4 o'clock on Sundays. And because it is syndicated, it also plays at 6 o'clock on Sundays on Freedom 1570 a.m. But 1280 a.m. The Patriot, 4 o'clock Sundays. And, you know, the podcast, just go to that little podcast uh, app. And I think it comes automatically on the iPhone, I, I think. And you go to that little guy and you put my name in, Andrew. It, and it comes up. It's unbelievable. The show comes up. So there's hundreds of shows on there. You can listen to Rudy Giuliani, Ben Shapiro, uh, governors, senators. I, I typed in Andrew Parker and nothing came up. You probably don't have <laughs> internet, Ari. I, 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 uh, I do. I, I am on the internet. But also they could use the code VICTORY on my pillow to get up to 66% off, right? Name of the show is the Victory Hour. You can push punch that in as well. Yeah, a, uh, a victory. Yeah, victory for mypillow.com, and you get up to sixty six percent off. And if you get fired in the state of Minnesota, you can go to Parker's Daniel Keyboard and see yep, if Parker take Daniel's it. Keyboard. You, yeah, you can come and uh, we'll take a look at your case. Well, Mr. Parker, Andrew, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for uh, a unique, one-of-a-kind interview, and we'll uh, be in touch. Next time, time we got to get father-son on together. <laughs> that would be enjoyable, as always, and I, uh, I wish you guys only the best mazel going yeah. forward. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. You're welcome.